yeah, I think we we give so much attention to the physical body and you know to all these other places that we're constantly trying to keep supportive and we don't you know we don't have to wait to a broken leg until we are working on strengthening our leg or or making sure we're cautious and the same type of mentality should be for supporting our mental health that it should be like mental hygiene it should be things we're doing on a daily basis to keep ourselves healthy welcome to the break the chains find your flame podcast our goal of this podcast is to provide insight and wisdom into all things mental health to sit down with individuals and talk about their journey how they've broken free from the chains that bind them to find their flame their passions and purpose Welcome back. As always, we're here with a new episode of the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. And this episode, I'm really excited to share with you all because we have a great guest on. Uh, John Cunha uh, is a licensed mental health counselor. So we geek out a little bit about that as we're talking, as we're both licensed mental health counselors. But we move on to more about the need for mental health and community-involved interventions with mental health to move beyond the past perception of what mental health is and to a more inclusive, integrative view of it. And as you know, that's my jam. It's a great episode. There are laughs. There's some seriousness. And as you find out in this episode, that's a huge point of therapy to celebrate the differences between the intensity of what's bringing someone in and the connection of the relationship between the therapist and the individual coming in. So we talk a lot about that. We talk a lot about John's past and it's just a fantastic episode. I, you know, I'm a broken record here. I think every episode we do is fantastic. Um, But this one is is a, a really fun one. So without further ado, here's John. So welcome to the podcast, John. Super excited to have you here. Really excited to talk about the work that you're doing. And a huge fan that you're a a licensed mental health counselor, such as myself. So I always like uh, to have that time and sit down and talk with people who have similar backgrounds, but hear how they're doing things and, you know, their interpretation of the work that we all do. So I'm super, super happy to have you here today, man. Yeah, I'm really excited. It's always fun. Um, to be checking in and chatting with another LMHC. It's like a, you know, close knit family. It feels like to be talking to them. So it's nice. It's like one of those things where you're passing on the street where someone's wearing a t-shirt of a band or a show that, you know, and you're just like, oh, you, you, we <laughs> you. get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's nice. So John, I'm wondering if just for the listeners, if you could give us a, I jokingly call this the origin story kind of question to lead off the podcast, but Wondering if you could give a little background about who you are, what you're doing, uh, just all that easy, easy five minute answer <laughs> to an yeah. esoteric question, right? Like, yeah. Who are you, John? Who are Encapsulate you? 35 years and five, right? Right, so, exactly. Five minutes. Yeah. So um, I always kind of joke and say, you know, when I was five, you know, kind of my origin story, but it really does actually start back then. I, I was a track and field athlete mm-hmm. and that was the first sport that I played that I like really latched to. Um, and like, 
athletes refer to like flow state or in the zone and track and field. I felt that. And I was introduced to it like five years old. So I played other sports growing up. Um, I did soccer, tried lacrosse, shattered my collarbone. Uh, so that was the end of that career. Um, but really the only reason I was any good at the other, at the end of the, at the other sports was that I was just really fast and faster than most people on the field. So really fully committed myself to track and field, um, from there ran through college, um, was pretty successful there in college and was sort of on track to maybe making running something I would do after school and after college. Um, and then my junior year, I tore my hamstring. Um, and it ended up being a career ender. And the way that I talk about it is not in the way that you would think like a physical injury, like, okay, you'd never be able to run the same, or, you know, your body just can't do what it needs to. I probably could have recovered physically from it, but the mental damage and the mental anguish that I went through during that time, um, I couldn't recover from. And I was, I call it like sports induced depression. I was definitely depressed, um, using substances in a way to block all that stuff out. Um, convinced myself that, um, you know, I wanted to give myself a real go in college and like a real college experience. And I kind of like avoided the issues. I was mad. I was angry. All of these different things were sort of like underneath the surface that I was just trying to not address um, and placing blame in different places that it didn't need to be placed. Um, And so that's like my athletic career, like my, my life as an athlete. And the reason I bring that up is because it's pretty central to how I'm, where I'm at right now. And so fast forward through college was a psych major because I just did well in the classes and I thought it was really interesting, but actually remember vividly telling myself I was never going to be a therapist. (laughs) I was like, nah, that's not for me. Definitely not. Um, But then having a real oh shoot moment sitting at commencement, listening to our speaker talk about the future and me being like, I don't actually really know what I want to do. Um, And then went back to my summer job as a lifeguard manager, was approached by someone who was working in the insurance world at New York Life, gave me a job. Nine months into that job, I had no interest in sitting behind a desk talking to 200 angry people a day about the benefits (laughs) of of helping to support their family and friends through life insurance. Um, But I, you know, I've, I've come to have some gratitude for that because it really promoted me to focus in on like, where have I always found myself? Where have I always just naturally gravitated towards? And that was helping people. I was a peer mentor in high school. I was a lifeguard, but I loved the best part of that was teaching lessons and working with people. And just so happened that my summer job, one of the other people that was there was going through a program at Leslie when, when he was talking about it, something just kind of clicked for me. And I was like, that's exactly what it is that I want to do. Um, and then went to school for it. Um, and then graduated from, from Leslie worked in Boston for a few years. And that was a lot of trauma work. So a lot of, a lot of reactive work um, and a lot of community-based support, helping kids get food, shelter, housing, clothes, materials, things like that. And then I worked in schools in Lexington for about five years after that. And I kind of refer to it as like, I was like interplanetary differences between working in Boston and that population in Lexington and that population. And um, I always like to refer to pain as pain and suffrage as suffrage. Um, but it was different types that I was really managing. Um, and what I really learned in Lexington, I loved being able to see kids every single day. I loved that. I loved the community feel and the community approach of working with staff and working with teachers to really help foster support. 
the red tape, the red tape and bureaucracy of schools, I just kind of got tied down with. Um, a lot. I, I, I see a lot of teachers in, in general, and there's a lot there. It's like the love for the kids and the population and helping them is is cultivated so well, but then it's how effectively can you do it within this framework? Yeah. And that's kind of what I felt like. It felt like going into boxing matches with like both hands tied behind my back. <clears throat> and I just, just didn't feel like I was doing the work that I really felt like I could be. Um, and being a, a guy working in the schools, I saw a lot of the young guys, they felt more comfortable. Now, gender treatment is irrelevant. It's treatment is treatment. But because I was a guy, I think a lot of guys could identify and wanted to come to speak with me. And I just felt like I was having the same conversation with a lot of these guys over and over and over again about the things that they were going through, the things that they felt like they weren't getting support on. Um, and so two, three years into working in public school at Lexington, I opened up my own part-time private practice. I told myself, I'll see like five clients, keep it nice and simple. Um, so that was five, then it was 10, then it was 15, then it was 20. And then it was my, my partner at home being like, where are you during the week? We need you here too. Um, and then my business partner, Jotham Busfield was a private practicing clinician in the, in the community of Lexington that I had good conversations with because we were both sort of aligned in our approach of working with young guys. Um, and I knew that I was kind of leaning more towards going private practice route full time. And so we just had conversations about rather than becoming competitors, we wanted to create something larger um, because he was seeing the same thing with young guys that I was. And so and that was sort of where the birth of Riser and Tread occurred. And that's where I'm that's where I'm currently at. We opened up in 2019 and here we are three years later. Um, and it's been <laughs> a wild ride, but it's been really, really fun. And I love it because the constraints that I once felt in school are gone and I get to be creative and flexible and innovative in the way that I provide treatment for my, um, for my clients, but also help teach other clinicians how to do some of the same type of stuff. And it's, it's a blast and a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. I, it's, it's so funny. I'm listening to your story and so many of the same things that you're saying kind of resonate with me uh, on a deep le level of, uh, I didn't have an injury that really sidelined my high school um, athletic career. I was a wrestler from middle school all the way to senior year. And I actually had an injury when I was younger that, that helped me be a wrestler was one of my shoulders is more flexible than the other because I fell downstairs when I was oh, little. Nice. So it yeah. was pretty impossible to pin me because I had like hyperextension in this arm and I could always pop my, <laughs> my shoulder. <laughs> that didn't mean I, will, I nice. won every match, but it just yeah, means like, right. you know, some matches I was six minutes just fighting off my back, but mm -hmm. you know, it did help me in, in that way. But um, even like the, the story of college is uh, I, I dealt with my own kind of depression in college that came unexpectedly out of nowhere, but in hindsight, I, I can track it way, way more now mm -hmm. with some clarity and, and then also feeling constrained in different jobs. I, uh, um, after grad school, I went into, uh, I went to South Bay mental health counseling out, out there and, um, not to bad mouth South Bay, but was not my favorite place to work just based mm -hmm. on some of the constraints with that. And so, you know, that's where our nonprofit came from. It's just trying to think outside of the box. And same as you, I really love this ability to be creative and how you approach things mm -hmm. and engage with people. Sometimes it's a little tricky because I'll have a session end and I'll think to myself, was, 
was that therapy I just did? Because I just had a lot of fun. All the time. <laughs> like, am, am yeah. I am I doing this right? You, you know what's what's going on? But I I love everything that you're echoing and. Uh, well, I'm echoing to you, but, you know, we have some of those things in common and I think yeah. it's needed, you know? I agree. I think that this type of, these types of conversations are so needed for a couple of reasons. And there's a couple of things I want to touch on too, but they're like, am I doing anything? I, I have those conversations with clinicians all the time <laughs> of like, right. I, I, we came in and we played a game of chess and we talked about life exactly. and, talked about yeah. and stuff and you leave and you're like, you're doing your notes and you're like, what exactly was accomplished here? Um, and it's, it's easy to like be internal and we're human beings too. And so we're, we're primed towards negative. So we like almost automatically attack ourselves and then grounding ourselves back is, is the challenge and it's hard to do, but it's so valid. And it's what makes talking to other clinicians and like-minded people so nice. Cause you're like, okay, yep. I've been there, um, been there, done that. Um, but yeah, I think the other thing that I was going to follow up on too, is the, the piece around the injury is kind of like, you know, we created riser and tread with a focus of helping support young guys. And that's like what we really focus on as we've grown. We're much more of a general practice now, as we've had other people come in that have a different expertise, but the sports piece is still so centralized to me because I knew, you know, since doing some work on myself post injury, you know, in the moment it was like everybody else's problem. The coach was a, you know, was a D bag and was <laughs> awful and my yeah. teammates weren't supportive. You know, you're, you're, you're placing the blame elsewhere because I couldn't handle it the hard answer, which was, this was on me, couldn't right. handle it at the time. And now I can, you know, I came to that clarity moment of like, I can't be the only person or the only athlete that's ever had to go through injury and had to experience some of these different things. And the more that I've like peeled back that veil, it's a huge, huge need um, of what I'm like coming up against and talking to. And it's funny, we, I created sports performance and recovery program. It's one of the programs that we do at Riser and Tread. Um, you know, it's designed and it's marketed of like, you know, sports performance and increase your play and all these different things. But I always like to refer to it as like sneaky therapy because it's, that's what it is, right? It's just language that we use to help people feel less, you know, stigmatized for coming in to do the work, but it's CBT, it's DBT, it's all that stuff that's grounded in the good work that we're doing. Um, and I just, that's, that's where I like really remain passionate about doing some of that work. And it's interesting, the clients that come in, the athletes specifically, and this ranges from pro athletes that I've worked with to, you know, middle school athletes that I've worked with, um, that they come in looking for like the sports performance edge. And like 95% of the time, Steve, we never talk about sports. It's all gets down to like, yeah, I'm really struggling with anxiety or like this depression and stuff like that. And so it's a fun way. And this is what I was sort of referring to before that I get to like create different things now that when I was in schools, I wouldn't have been able to have the latitude to do this type of stuff. But because I've had the flexibility to create, I've been able to draw people in at a less threshold. You know, therapy for young men is still, I would say the stigma is reducing for sure. Yeah. It's still very much there. But if you frame it of like, go talk to a coach and go speak to somebody who can help like with your performance then it's a lower threshold for them to come in to do the work. And I found that that to be, be particularly helpful, especially those like resistant angsty adolescent boys uh, that are always so tricky to crack that I found that that's a great way to kind of get yeah. in and meet them on a level that feels comfortable for them. And yeah, that's half of my clientele. <laughs> they, they <laughs> just mentioned, but yeah. it's true though. I mean, I, I, I have, it, I don't know if you've experienced, but I have the, the adolescents that come in and call me doctor just to feel more comfortable about coming in. And I'm like, you don't have to do that. I'm not a doctor. And mm -hmm. the response is, if it's okay, I want to call you Dr. Steve. And I'll say, okay, you got or it. coach. That's the other thing. I say, you can call me 
whatever you want to, as long as it's not <laughs> inappropriate. And then even then, if it's creative, maybe I'll let you get away with it. Yeah, right. But like that, I think that's a really important part is, is the, the verbiage and the labeling of what this is gets in the way. Mm-hmm. And some, some of the clients I remember the most are those clients who come in and say, this is therapy. I had no idea that this is what therapy is or, you know, just uh, for me, if they say, Hey, I was out and I channeled my, my inner Steve voice and I did this, you know, obviously we don't want it to be about us making the changes, but it's cool that they're connecting to these points, talking points that we have in in sessions and, and kind of talk about, even if it's, you know, half the time I start my intakes with dad jokes because that's just the personality I have. And I tell them like, Hey, I can't promise that I won't make terrible jokes, but there is room for levity when you come into therapy. Like there, there's a ton of room here. It doesn't always have to be being forced or doom and gloom all the time, even though we'll touch upon some of that stuff. So I, I love what you're doing with uh, riser and tread and really challenging that stigma. Yeah. And the doom and gloom stuff is, it really resonates with me because I do feel like that's a big, a big barrier or one of the barriers for not just guys, but everybody of thinking like, well, I'm just going to go into this place and just always be talking about terrible, awful things. And of course that would create fatigue. And why would you want to go in and just constantly once a week for an hour, talk about how terrible things are and helping them to reshift what the perspective or what actually happens in a therapy room. And those are the best moments, right? When you're, right. when you talk to somebody and you're like, Hey, how did today go? And like, that was nothing like what I was expecting. You're like, awesome. I got them. Like we're in, I hooked them. They know that this isn't going to be like what they probably have seen on TV or, you know, anything like that. And it's always nice. And, um, and I always tell, I always tell people and parents too, for that matter, that you don't have to come to therapy when, you know, when you're in crisis, you know, most people do, I'd say still, but majority I I feel like are on that precipice, you know? Yeah. Like right before they cross over into, you know, big crisis, but um, I wouldn't consider myself in crisis and I talk to a therapist and, you know, and I think a lot of people do just because there's, there's benefit of having a person in your corner. That's not a part of your daily life that can just keep you on, you know, keep you honest and add different perspectives that you just might not think of for your own biases or whatever. It's a real benefit. And I think that, um, trying to get that message across can be, is, you know, really helpful, which is why I love situations like this or doing podcasts and things like that. So we can try to shape it a little bit. I think the one beautiful thing that we're in the midst of, like, is that there was like this old adage of how therapy went and the the images of it. And we're in this real transformative age right now of trying to break from that and not have it look exactly the same because the times are different, the needs are different and the implementation of services and treatment needs to be different. And that's, what's really cool because we're on the front line of that. And it's pretty invigorating and uh, exciting. It is. And I think it's needed because of just the the past stigmas and the fact that, you know, we're looking more towards community-based interventions mm-hmm. that obviously there's always going to be need for providers for, for assistance, but the more community-based we can kind of make these things, I think the longer sustainable changes people can make in their lives, because that is a majority of where they spend their time is in community rather mm-hmm. than the hour or so a week that they come into the offices. And I, I think it's great um, that we're on that forefront because I think it's going some really cool places. And, 
you know, last year we had uh, a mini series that was uh, stigma is curable. And we had different people come in and present once a month on a different stigma topic with mental health or health in general. Actually, Lacey uh, came in and talked about uh, fat phobia and eating disorders and diet yeah. culture. That's and awesome. She did awesome. She's obviously. incredible. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> shout out to Lacey. Yeah. Shout um, out. <laughs> but even sitting in that space where I took a step back from, you know, talking so much mm-hmm. like I do on the podcast or in sessions, or if I'm talking to you know, trainings or whatever, it was cool to just MC that and have different people come in and do different perspectives and have community involvement, sometimes challenges and resolve in real time. And then sometimes just looking for extra resources. And I, I think, you know, when I think about the nonprofit, the Promethean project that we're building, that's where I want to move it towards this, you know, that same concept and have it be normalized to come into a setting like that and get those yeah. things. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, the, the, the work that you guys are doing is so, and so, so important because if, if people just understood that that barrier doesn't need to exist and that it's self-imposed, that we would, we'd see a lot more people in treatment and things a little bit, you know, things would be going a lot smoother for a lot of different people. And if people just had that understanding, um, I think there'd be a lot of things that would be looking, that would look a lot, a lot different. So, um, and I do like, I, th- I do still see and hear, um, you know, chatter or in different groups that I might be trying to support, they're still sort of locked in that old adage or old thinking of how to approach this type of work. And while I do, I'm certainly not in the like discard everything from previous generations, right? Because right? they set, they paved the way, but reform always needs to happen in any field. And it feels like we're sort of lingering in old adage of stuff and needing to kind of transfer over. So all the, all the stuff that you guys are doing to help to, to do that. I love the fact that you guys are doing presentations and stuff like that on destigmatization of different topics. I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah. Um, I think that that stuff is just really, really important and key for everybody. Yeah. And I think that this sounds like we're just giving each other accolades. <laughs> what we're yeah. doing, we'll, we'll get more into to the, the meat of the podcast, but I think, I think you're right. Like there is so much, so much here. And the reason why we did the stigma stuff is I wanted different perspectives. And, you know, I'm a very privileged person, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm cisgender, I'm straight, I'm white, I'm male, I'm able-bodied. So my perspective, although I've done a lot of training on this stuff, is still my perspective and can always be skewed because of that privilege. And the stigma event, we really wanted to provide different voices and diverse and inclusive voices in these things and not just trauma, but... Uh, trauma in the black and brown community and you know so that these things can get out there and we can be cognizant of hey like you were saying is not just to discard everything that's happened in the past with therapy but also be aware that hey this was a lot of white men who created this and sometimes hurting other other people of different colors and and women especially Mm -hmm. and so some of that stuff we have to build that filter in as we move forward. Yeah, I agree. We've, we've seen the damage and ramifications of white men coming together to create policies and institutions, right? So it's a good, it's a good reminder that, um, I mean, two white men standing or sitting here on a podcast too, right? It's pretty indicative of it, right? Right, exactly. So, yeah, but I, I do, it, it, it is important to understand that like our perspectives, and that's one of the things that's generated when we've, we're looking to expand. So First, it was just just Jotham and I, two 
cis, I mean, we check every single privilege box yeah. for white men in this country, right? And so um, it was just us. And we knew we wanted to set up and start something completely new. We wanted to sort of shift the, the what group practices look like. My wife's a therapist as well. She worked yes. for South Bay. So I'm sure you guys can <laughs> talk a lot about that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, but we were really purposeful in trying to, when we were thinking of expanding and, bra- and bringing in new clinicians, we were really purposeful of, yes, we're grounded in our work of helping to support young men because that's, what's really important to us. But that just doesn't, that doesn't look like just helping to support white men. Um, and when we're bringing on additional clinicians, we want people with different backgrounds, different experiences, different perspectives, because ultimately that just means we can service the community in a more representative way versus just hear a bunch of white guys that are going to, you know, tell you what to do or, you know, offer some support and how that, how that looks, but also how that, um, actually plays out in treatment. So, uh, we're fortunate that we have a really diverse team and a lot of people who come on with different perspectives so that when people are calling in for help, rather than like who's available, it's like, who's going to be the best fit based off of everything, culture, community, as yeah. social economic background, everything we could really be thoughtful about pairing, which is great. Yeah, seeing part of yourself in the person you're working with is really mm-hmm. important. Yeah, of I- identity and connection. And then also, you know, just even like the thematic stuff that we do in therapy, right? Like mindfulness, big buzzword, really helpful, can be really great. However, if you're working with uh, different cultures and different communities, it looks different because mm-hmm. you can't just tell someone, hey, sit still and notice things if they're actively not feeling safe in their Mm -hmm. environment or if they have uh, food scarcity and they have to think about that you know oh just do mindfulness and your anxiety will go away well not if you don't have food right not if you don't have a house or if you're in a a domestic abuse situation or a neighborhood that's threatening you mindfulness can alleviate some of that stuff but it's not a metric in application across the board of everyone it's just mm-hmm. sit still and notice five things you can see, you know, that old adage of five to one. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't get me wrong. I have, I'm working on a kid's book on mindfulness and I think it's yeah. highly important, but these are some of the filters we have to build into what we're doing mm. to, to really serve all communities. Cause that's what's needed. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's easy it's easy to get stuck in our own ways. And I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this too, because of my privilege. It's, it's easy for that mass to come straight back on without even realizing it's there. And, um, you know, we try to have both trainings, but also just open dialogue to make sure that we can kind of keep that from, from occurring, or at least recognize when it, when it does. Um, it's a great point about, about mindfulness. Um, it kind of reminds me too, that it feels like one of the unintended consequences, and I can't quite figure out if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but there's a lot of converse, like the conversations that are happening in therapy offices are now becoming more like mainstream. And I'm hearing a lot of, you know, I'm curious about this, not in a, not in a counseling room or a lot of that stuff kind of like percolating out. And while I think it's good, I also worry that kind of to the same point with mindfulness, it was like mindfulness cures all, do it, do it. And yeah. school latch to it. We got to do mindfulness, mindfulness. That's the reason. And when it's done so quickly as like a plug the hole type of situation, it, it gets dismorphed and it, it doesn't come out. Right. So a lot of people still believe that like mindfulness is this like relaxation tool. And it's like, well, that might be a symptom of doing it for a long time, but it can actually be pretty excruciating to sit with yourself and your own thoughts. So it's not actually exactly. a relaxing situation. It can actually be quite anxiety provoking, but the yeah. idea of it is to build the capacity to do that. Yeah, that but I feel like tolerance. Quick, 
building exactly. it out, right? Um, exactly. So I th- and no, I, we're I such like- nerds with therapy terms. <laughs> Anyone talk about all like, day. What the hell yeah. are they talking about? What do you mean? Yeah. Window- um, but yeah. it's true. I actually, uh, a while ago, probably 2019, maybe 2018, I think it's when the second Avengers movie came out. I can't remember. And uh, I went to a training in Boston on mindfulness and meditation at Harvard Medical School. And um, that was one of the, those were two of the takeaways I took from that, that, that first comment that I, I had made, which, you know, I had taken from one of the trainings was about this looks different and you can't, this can be triggering to, to some people depending mm-hmm. on their backgrounds. And then the second was mindfulness is not just for the enjoy, enjoyable moments of your life. When you go out to eat with friends, you know, oh, let's put the phones away and be mindful and be present. It all, it's also really important to practice in the shitty aspects of your life too is yeah. like sitting with that and joking mm-hmm. around they have talked listeners have probably heard this story 80 times but um the presenter was talking about doing the dishes mindfully and i was like oh i hate doing the dishes maybe i should practice that and no joke i actually don't mind the dishes anymore i've gotten to that point of building that window of tolerance where it's just like oh yeah i'll do it and be mindful in what i'm doing mm-hmm. and, and before i'd be uh oh, leave it for the morning and I'll do it. And then there's like 80 pans. And I'm, oh, yeah. I'm running late. I'm like, oh, these damn pans. You know? Yeah. They don't um, just magically disappear as you hope they will. No, yeah. but I, I think that's a really good point. It's not about relaxation. It's about widening your ability to tolerate things and sit with mm-hmm. some. So that's great. So I'm a, a huge fan of names. So obviously, I have to ask you about Riser and Tread. Where where did that name for the business kind of come from? What, what bore that? Yeah. So Jotham Busfield, who's my business partner, um, he was actually in his previous life. Um, I would came from insurance and he came from architecture. So he actually went to architecture school down in Temple, um, got all the way through that program and kind of had one of those similar moments afterwards of just this isn't the life that I want to live. It's a hundred hours a week. It's, you know, from his experience, it was relatively cutthroat in like getting bids and getting stuff. And he's just like, I just don't want to do this. Um, so riser and tread is actually a construction term. It's the, um, the process of building stairs. So uh, the tread is what you step on. And then the riser is the stuff on the back. And so the concept is that we're building stairs towards where you want to go to. Um, and you know, our logo step up and move forward is kind of in reflection of that. So, and we didn't want to, it to be, you know, like Busfield CUNA counseling or, right. you know, and, and have it, you know, and stuff like that. We wanted to kind of get away from that and have something that has nothing to do with therapy or counseling be sort of representative of what we want. So that's the, the origin story of Riser and Tread. I love it. I, yeah. I am a huge word nerd and uh, obviously a term of endearment for my love for that in comic books. But I, I, I really dig that in the concept. It, it's illustrating what, what you're doing in the same token gets people to think, oh, why this and not, you know, like an LLC or, you, you know, however you want to want to do that. And so I think that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. What we found too, is that that actually that question that you just asked helps engagement and buy-in for, for, for working with, with people. So I always find when either clients or parents are like, what's riser and tread? Like, what does that even mean? 
and then you get to explain to what it is, it kind of like primes them of like, oh, okay, we're talking about moving up, moving forward, building something, learning something, empowerment. It's kind of like a really easy way to bridge that conversation and talk about like, here's what we're going to be doing in the future um, and how we're going to support. So um, I've, I've, that's been a kind of a unintended, that wasn't part of our process of creating the name, but that's just been something that's come up since we've, um, since, since we've, um, since 2019 when we started. And I think that's that's a really beautiful way to do that work is is uh, drawing in people's attention to it and then how it illustrates so so neatly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could make connections with words all day, so I'm I'm not going to bore the, the audience listening more uh, yeah. about that. But I do I do like that thought provoking and then that that transition that bridging the gap that mm-hmm. kind of came up. So yeah, that's really absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I think it's sometimes just helpful for, um, I get a lot of parents who are calling, I'd say primarily moms who are calling like worried about their sons or, or things like that. Um, and I feel like it's a, it's hard. It's hard as a parent to call in and say, my kid is struggling. The, the, the parents are going through a ton of stuff for themselves, their own yeah. guilt. How could I have missed this? Why don't they talk to me? You know, all, all of the normal stuff that we see with parents that have much of nothing to do with them for the most part. Yeah. Um but then if you can sort of softly engage them in what this process is going to look like, it doesn't feel so overwhelming. I think our field is still very um, difficult to manage and navigate, um, especially post, or I would say during and definitely post COVID, there is just a shortage of us um, and, a, and a way more increased demand. Um, and it's it's stressful. I think parents' anxieties are, are huge right now coming in and trying to find services and help. And so when you can have that conversation with them in a less like clinical conversation, it's easier for them to feel a little bit more comfortable and like, okay, I feel a little bit, I feel good about who, you know, about this process and what's going to, what's going to happen next. So. Yeah. And when you think about it, that's really what therapy is. It's not this clinical jargon or these diagnoses, even though insurance is really upfront about, Hey, you need to diagnose right away. Um, it is about sitting sitting with them and just kind of creating that space and and helping create that space with the individual. And, you know, I think, I think that's a great reframe to kind of put into it. It's it's like, not only does that question kind of explain what we do, but it opens up that door to say, Oh, it doesn't have to be really cerebral. We can kind of sit here on equal footing, even though you have this degree, it's working together in the trenches of life to, to figure things out. Yeah, exactly. A collaborative, and you, you spoke about it earlier, like collaborative and community-based, right? And I'm just yeah. another member of the community, like another member of your, you know, son or daughter's community coming in to support. And that usually feels better. I think parents are sometimes, a lot of times nervous, like that they're going to, you know, that they're going to be blamed by the therapist, that it's their fault that this happens. And, yeah. um, you know, we've certainly probably worked with parents who are probably hindering um, treatment or things like that, I guess is the most diplomatic way I can put it. Um but, you know, for the most part, that's not the case. And so if, it, you know, you come in of like, let's align and work together to help support, you can like feel like the exhale in the room when you, when you start having conversations like that with them. Very good. So I have a couple of questions that I didn't tell you about yeah, yeah, <laughs> for the no, podcast, just, just for, from us talking, because I think it's really important. And, and along those lines, a little, a little bit on, um, Cause this was kind of true for me and I'm just uh, interested to see your own version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, when I first started out, 
there was this duality of being a therapist that was really challenging of, hey, I want to be here and really want to do really good work and feeling like I have to catch everything and kind of be that support to, to change the game for an individual. But in the same token, dealing with this imposter syndrome of, I literally graduated and you're giving me this young kid's life to kind of work with. Yeah. Uh, and I was wondering if you could speak on your own kind of experiences with maybe those two things, or if you had both of them or, or not, um, just kind of how that felt for you. Yeah, I would say imposter syndrome, I, w- I would say most clinicians path have experience, have come up against that or have the like, what did I, we talked about earlier, what did I, what did I even do? Um, but that really, the imposter syndrome stuff really crept in when I started doing like part-time stuff. And, um, and especially when I um, worked with private pay, I would say that it like that amplified it even more. So it was like a two-step process. And I, I remember having, this is actually where supervision came in real handy for me. And I really leaned on it. I had an awesome supervisor for one of my clinical placements in school. And I've stayed in touch with her because she's phenomenal. Um, and she kind of helped me through that. Um, but I definitely often would be so focused in and dialed in with how does this session need to go? I was over planning for my sessions and I would have these massive agendas. We need to make sure that we do this style of CBT and address this type of stuff. And I would have, it was like, choose your own adventure book situation for me. It was like, okay, if they do this, I'm going to do this. If they do this, I'm going to do this. And and, and I was, I was eating up probably as much time doing that as I was doing actual clinical services. And ironically, I found that my treatment was, not as impactful of me just showing up to the room and responding to the space that the person was in and removing my agenda. You know, I would have not necessarily removing my agenda. I would have my target goals that either we have identified or things of like my curiosity that I still had. And I would go into conversations with those in mind, but I wouldn't address them until, or if that person wanted to. And I found that that was really helpful because what I was starting to feel, which I knew that I was probably transferring to my clients was this like angst, like we got to get to work. We got to go, we got to get there, we got to move. And for someone who's new to the process or not ready to be moved, they're ready to be heard um, and validated. That's a, that's counterintuitive and you're going to actually be disruptive to their treatment. And so that was a lesson my supervisor told me that I carry with me in my back pocket every day um, of have an agenda, but don't go with an agenda. Um, and that was really helpful for me to, to deal with that. And actually, once I started to do that, my sessions went better. My connections with my clients were way deeper and stronger. And that imposter syndrome started to kind of like dial down a little bit. Um, and I, and I'll admit to getting emails or notes or things like that of like, you've been really great and you've really helped me. We don't get those thank yous very often, but when they do, they really help. Um, And that definitely helped for me too. I've done a lot of work on like internally validating myself and affirming myself. And I do a lot of that work for myself because um, I think it's important. Um, But those external ones, definitely, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie and say they don't help (laughs) because they do. Um, They're just a nice topping on, on the rest of it. you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the imposter syndrome was definitely something that was for a while. And, and I would say that it's never really fully gone. I, I, I definitely have some sessions, especially more, some of my more complex ones that are a little bit more complicated in the approach that 
I definitely am like, what am I doing? Am I even the right person for this? Can I even do this work? Right. Like I, I have those, I have those conversations with myself still. I'm better suited to like work with them now. Um, but in the beginning, I think it was really hard and I, and talking to new clinicians and talking to clinicians in general, it just feels like a natural arc of our progression. Like, yeah. the, like, it's just going to be something that we're all going to come up against and, and deal with. Um, but it's really hard when you're in the midst of it. And actually, as we were just talking, I made a connection that I hadn't quite made a connection before in my mind, which real time insight <laughs> in this <laughs> podcast was. I was kind of talking about juggling those two aspects, but I think they were really the same, right? Like mm -hmm. that imposter syndrome, trying to over plan, especially with younger kids. Okay, this is the activity we're going to do. I think that fed that narrative of like, oh, I have to solve all these issues because I felt insecure in that way. Um, and once I let go of that in my own practice over time and supervision, like you were saying, in my own insight practices, um, you know, I think it leads to those greater sessions and greater connections, even with really young kids. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you often think, oh, okay, it has to be some kind of structure for this kid coming in, but just opening that up can be so, so strong for the session, you get way more out of it than if you're like, okay, how, how are we going to play Uno in a, a CBT kind of way? Like, well, how are we going to structure that? Right. Yeah. I think it becomes its own distraction. And one of the things that came up for me in supervision, and I have conversations with parents about this, but that I was sort of guilty of, of getting it down this road was that when you start to like, okay, I got to go in there and fix these problems. By definition, the person is a problem, problem yeah. right? And that's not true. There's nothing broken about these people no. that we're working with. And I think that that type of like giddy up mentality was getting in the way. And I was like, okay, so there have these three things that are going on. I got to like check these off um, and fix them. Um, meanwhile, when I'm talking to parents about their interactions with their kids, I'm like, your kid isn't broken. They're not, you don't, right. need, to, you don't need to fix them, but here I am in I the gotta, room. I got to solve this problem for them, especially if yeah. they're paying out of their pocket. You know? Exactly. And now all that stuff was playing on my mind. And as, as soon as I just stepped back from it and just sat and like fully sat in the room with them, things really started to shift. And, yeah. um, you know, some kids need things different and some adults need things different. So some of my sessions are a little bit more structured mm -hmm. um, in their, in their approach because the kids need more psychoed. They don't, you know, yep. they, don't, they don't have the capacity to answer some of the questions or dive into some of those things. So some of it is a little bit more psychoed structure, right. but some of it is just, I'm going to sit. I've got a few clients that I barely say anything during session and they need just someone to talk to and get all this stuff out. And so but that doesn't get learned like what they need unless I remove myself from that space and just be present for them to navigate and figure that out for themselves. And for me to ask questions and guide a little bit, but not to see them as a problem that needs to be fixed. Yeah. I love that. I also, uh, we were talking about supervision and getting that help for that structure, which I think is always reaching out for help is a really good, you know, resilience builder for anyone. And mm -hmm. all that, all your points about what we were just talking about, we're talking about in a clinical sense, but I think it translates to any job or any situation that you're trying to, to deal with imposter syndrome or, or kind of be present. And um, as an aside, one of the things that helped me get over that was my own ability to make fun, fun of myself in session with the kids. So mm -hmm. playing Uno and then 
you know, challenging them to like, oh, let's do something silly. The the loser of Uno has to do something silly if if you accept that. And mm. you know, obviously not pushing and usually they would. And then um sometimes I would let them win, but other times they would just trounce me. <laughs> and my go-to thing was to do the worm in the waiting room. So when mm. I would lose that, I'd say, okay, I gotta, I took the dare, I gotta go do the worm in the waiting room. And then I think it, one, it kind of made them laugh. And two, it's like, okay, it doesn't all have to be so serious. We can, we can yeah. kind of make fun of ourselves a little bit and mm-hmm. have that space. One kid brought in a chicken suit for me to do. Like he won <laughs> and then held on to that winning for <laughs> weeks. And <until laughs> yeah. it was like, hey, finally, here's your, I'm like, I don't know if this counts. I don't know if you, you can do the dare like months after you won. But yeah. Um, but I, that really helped me too, is, is just saying, oh, I don't have to be so serious about this as well. I can just sit and see where it goes and, you know, um, yeah. not Superman, right? You, no. you don't have to, you don't have to solve all these things because no, not a problem to be solved. No, I agree. And I, and I think we do a disservice if we get stuck in that realm of taking stuff off their plate and, you know, fixing, you know, fixing things for them. I mean, I think one of the things that I talk about with parents, especially, but clients of like, I don't want my door to be a revolving one. Like every time something comes in or comes up for you, you don't feel prepared to manage. So you got to come back in here in my office and we've got a process and problem solve and things like that. And so it might be a pretty bad business model, but uh, it's a great model for treatment for clients of coming in and empowering them with skills and tools and ideas and perspectives to support themselves. And um, because ultimately the process of therapy is that there's a beginning, middle and an end. Um, and I, I think it's far better for them when, when, the, when that termination or we call it validation of progress. I, I don't know who came up with the term. I, termination. I don't know who thought about that, but it's terrible, but it's awful. So we call it validation of progress. Um, and we're constantly thinking about, you know, how are we leaving our clients and are they feeling prepared and empowered to deal with life as it comes to them? Um, right. and I thought I see that as a much better way to suit and treat clients than like, a, okay, I'll, I'll like fix this one little thing, but I know you're not really helping cause you're going to come back in here in two months and need something else. So right. that's kind of how we, we both coach our clinicians, but also kind of keep our frame of mind for treatment in general. Yeah, it's great. I jokingly always tell clients that I have a weird job. My job is to work myself out of a job. <laughs> well put yeah you know so true. Yeah. it's like one of the only jobs like yeah you know i like you but i don't want to see you again <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. obviously in just not being mean, yeah but, right um now all, all of this is fantastic i really appreciate this conversation and this mm. openness because i think this is part of the stigma right if we want to work with communities and work with people to to help them kind of work towards the goals that they have or, or the potential that they have. I think a lot of it falls on our ability to be open with this stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a long process, as you kind of know, it took me years to realize I had, you know, trauma in my life and had an emo- uh, emotional overeating disorder. I was literally sitting in a yoga uh, Y12SR yoga as a 12 step recovery program training. And in my mind, I'm like, you know, what do I have to add to this community? Like, I just do the work. I don't really have this background. And then all of a sudden, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, no, you had an addiction to food. And that was, I was six years into 
being a counselor at that point, but that's how tricky this stuff is. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, everything that we're talking about, I think is really helpful as a clinician or a person going to therapy to, to pay attention to these things and, and notice these things. Yeah, I agree. And I'm so appreciative of these types of conversations because I think it matters when two professionals are talking about it than when other people or influencers or people who don't have the background, not to say that they can't do the work, but I I just, I really value these conversations because I think that this mental health, especially recently is like such a topic of communication and like everything else, everyone's trying to find an edge of how to capitalize on that. And this is really a place that that can't really occur. And so these types of conversations, I feel like are so beneficial because it helps to keep the conversation guided, I think within the guardrails of where things need to stay. So I love so. Yeah, <laughs> we, I, I think so. we went off, off track a couple of times, but I think Maybe that's a few. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's okay. okay. We're we can laugh at ourselves yeah. though. Um, so as, as you know, I kind of gave you a, a, a quick idea of what some of the last questions of the podcast historically yeah. are. And so mm-hmm. I think this is a perfect time to transition into this. Actually, before I do that, a couple points uh, I wanted to point out. I actually grew up uh, close to Lexington. I grew up on Hanscom Air Force Base. Oh, no way. Um, and okay. so when you were ta- kind of talking about that era, I knew exactly what you were talking about because of my proximity to it when I was was younger. And um, I think it's really cool that there's a lot of similarities that we're talking about with, with all of this, because I think what we'll find is the more time you spend sitting with someone, getting to know that person, there's a lot of similarities in just life in general and experience of lives. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because my dad was uh, retired. He's a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force. So I spent Mine much- too. <laughs> no. So I, I was going to say, so I didn't funny. grow up on Hanscom uh, Air Force Base, but I sure spent a lot of time there. Um, yeah. I'm sure that the bowling alley, like dollar games and $2 burgers was my life in the Picking summer. fingers and french fries right into my emotional overeating disorder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we'd go there all the time. Mm-hmm. I would, I would take my... Uh, change from my bank and go buy chicken fingers there, there all the time so mm-hmm. yeah. nice two dollar movie nights was a good thing oh, there too. Clutch. Can't beat yeah Can't i tried wait. to explain that to my daughter and she was she said how come you had to wait so long for new releases and i said because we only paid two dollars to go see it <laughs> right so yeah. it was worth it a month mm-hmm. or two after they were released we got to see them for two dollars so. yep exactly all right so the the last couple questions the first question is, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? So this this one is a little unoriginal, uh, but I would love to be able to fly. Yeah. I, it's just, I know that's probably the top one yeah. for me. Um, I think it would bring my like sprinting days and running days for track where I like that, get that euphoria are mm-hmm. behind me. But if I could fly, it'd probably be the closest to that I could get. Um, I wouldn't want to be the flash might sound weird. I don't, I don't know. I, I like my own speed, not extra, uh, extra. So to fly, I think would be my, my big one, just so I could feel like the rush of the, of the air on my face and yeah. all those different things. That would be that, that would be mine for sure. Yeah. And like no carbon emission either when you go traveling, right? Yep. Saving the planet, saving the planet in your own way. I love yeah. it. And the second question would be, what do you think your real life superpower is? Yeah. So honestly, um, my ADHD, I would say is like my superpower um, for my, for pretty much my entire experience in public school. 
it was, I framed it as this detriment to myself of this is the reason I'm stupid or I can't do anything and um, come to recognize and realize that I just hadn't figured out how to manage it. And now I couldn't imagine what my life would look like without it. Um, it it's, it contributes to everything for me. Um, and so I really do see that as like my, my superpower. Um, and we probably don't, we don't have enough time to go down the, 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 the rabbit hole for this one, but I don't even really see it as a disorder. I know why it talks about it that way, but I really right. do see it as a huge advantage for myself. Yeah. And I, that's why I really like some of the, the change in neurotypical and neurodiverse, um, wording on, on, on different things, because I do think there is this ability to everything like what you were just saying. I think in, in certain moments, it doesn't feel that way for sure. And mm -hmm. sitting with people who have it, you know, if you say, Hey, this could be a positive thing for you, they're not going to grasp onto it because they haven't seen that yet. Right. Um, but I, I do think I really like some of the change that's coming out um, because it makes sense, right? Like looking at schooling in general, when they're saying, Hey, how do we get neurodiverse people to be more neurotypical it's the wrong me metric yeah, to yeah. kind of judge people by right it's drives it's me like, wild no find a way for them to succeed in their own way yeah agreed I'm, I'm giving a presentation to um school counselors next month in western mass that's and awesome. that's one of the things that you know i really am highlighting is, is this ability to kind of help people co-regulate and work on coherence rather than uniform approach yes. to addressing this so Yep. We see that with autism and, and things like that too. Like they, we need to teach them to conform versus the society, you know, learning how to communicate, you know, in a different way or just right. adding a different perspective. So that's awesome. That sounds like a great, cool thing that you're going to be able to do. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I got to get my slides in order, but hopefully <laughs> it comes out pretty good. Yeah. Yep. So John, if you had, you know, if you were pitching our podcast episode today to, to the listeners and really wanted them to be able to take one gem of wisdom away from, well, there are many, but if we had to condense it down to one and you had to pitch that, what would you think that would, what would you say? What would you want them to leave with? The, the one thing that I want, I'd want people to take away from this and then in general is that um, you don't need to be in crisis to seek help and support. I think that would be the big one that I would want people to take away from this is, um, is that I think oftentimes when I work, and I would say that this is more, more so I see this with young guys is that they come in and they don't even realize how bad it is. They just sort of assume, oh, this is just normal. This is just typical levels of like, I'm just walking around with huge levels of depression and anxiety, but this is just normal. Um, and too often I find that we're, we're digging ourselves out of crisis than we are implementing skills and talking about systems of support. Um, and so that'd be my biggest takeaway that I'd want people to, to know is reach out, experiment with it, experience it, learn about what it really looks like. It's not what you think about it, you know, from what you've seen in movies or TV shows. Um, you know, so I would really, that would be the biggest takeaway is to seek support, have some curiosity about it, and you don't need to be in crisis to, to access therapy. Right. I think that's a great place to end. I really do think that encapsulates everything that we've talked about and really normalizes this idea of what mental health should be, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the definition of mental health, it's, you know, the health of the mind. And then if you look up the definition of mind, it's how you make sense of your environment and what's going on around you. 
And that's really what we're talking about in therapy. It's like, well, how, how, what's coming in for you and how do we make sense of what's happening? And then how do we adjust based on where you mm-hmm. want to be? Agreed. Yeah, I think we, we give so much attention to the physical body and you know, to all these other places that we're constantly trying to keep supportive. And we don't, you know, we don't have to wait to a broken leg until we are working on strengthening our leg or, or making sure we're cautious. And the same type of mentality should be for supporting our mental health, that it should be like mental hygiene. It should be things we're doing on a daily basis to keep ourselves healthy. Right. I agree. I agree. So thank you again, John. Really blessed to have you on here and share this time with you. Um, I really enjoy all that insight and I'm looking forward to what, what you're doing with Riser and Tread. And, you know, hopefully we can collaborate in the future and find more reasons to communicate and talk. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the, the honor of coming on and speaking with you, Steve. Thanks so much. Thank you.